Hi, and welcome to Birth of Paganism. It has become a, a, a crucial part of our identity of what we mean when we talk about words like paganism, neo-paganism, and all of the words that are around it. And so I'm starting fresh this year, as I promised, with a new series called Birth of Paganism, and I am with Oberon Zell, who is known as the father of paganism, neo-paganism. He has a lot of different titles, but we're going to get to start why today. And welcome, Oberon. Thank you, sir. Hi, Ed. Good to be here again. Um, yes, and absolutely. Uh, just recently, if you've seen, we put out the theology piece again from four years ago, and it is vibrant as ever. Uh, where we talked about theogenesis and things of that nature. But today we're going to ask him very particularly about how did or Oberon, uh, in, in this name, father of uh, modern paganism, father of different things, father of paganism for the modern era. This is kind of one of the things that is a very powerful statement in our community. And I want to find out how we got there so that you have, so you know it too. So uh, let us go ahead and start. Where did all of this start for you? I mean, where would you where would you say is your birth moment? Well, my my uh, physical birth moment actually, yeah. uh, being born, mm -hmm. was um, awakening in the same room I died in in my previous incarnation, uh, the which had been my mother's father, my maternal grandfather, had been my previous incarnation, and I died and awakened in the very same room that had been now converted into a nursery. And I had a very distinct experience and a very distinct memory of that particular event. And growing up as a child, I was constantly being told by my uh, mother and my grandmother that um, I, I sounded just like my grandfather. And that was the sort of thing he said and the sort of thing that he did. And it was a constant thing. Many, many years later, my father, who was a devout Christian, um, told me in all sincerity over, over lunch that um, I had convinced him of the reality of reincarnation, which was not a part of his faith, but that his experience with dealing with me um, as, a, as a kid growing up was a complete conviction of that. So, you know, that was just a part of it there. Um, I had memories as a child uh, that I thought were... Uh, were part of my life and years later I asked about them I said well when did these things happen because it was like a, a number of of snapshots in a box you know and you don't know when they were taken and you want to know so I kind of got them out and I said well how about this and how about that and when did this happen and so on like that and the answers I got back were that didn't happen to you that happened to your grandfather and then I would get the rest of the story and some of them were pretty elaborate and um, it was quite a shake-up to me to realize that all these memories I had of my childhood were not from this life. But, you know, I got over it and continued to move forward with having a life this time around. And um, but I was always drawn to pagan stuff. I didn't use that particular um, term for it in the early days because it wasn't floating. But my earliest reading as a child, and I was extremely precocious as a child, obviously, I came in as an old soul which is what my father used to call me. And uh, my very first reading were children's versions of the Greek myths, you know, uh, translated through um, the um, Metamorphosis uh, series so that they use Roman names for all the Greek gods, which was somewhat disconcerting later on. 
But I remember those very distinctly. That was my very first reading. Long, long before I was old enough to go off to Sunday school and learn about the Christian mythology, I was immersed in, in the Greek myths. So I learned about gods and goddesses and their stories and um, the multiplicity of a pluralistic, polytheistic cosmology. It, it just seemed perfectly normal. And um, that interest in mythology, I, I went on to explore mythologies in many other cultures, which I thought was all wonderful. I love stories. And that took me into fairy tales and other mythologies. And the fairy tales led me into fantasy, and the fantasy led me into science fiction. And I just kept on going forward with all of that. I did go to Sunday school. I had a perfect attendance record from the day I started all the way till I was... Um, too old to go and went away to go off to school. But I never missed a Sunday in all those years um, because I thought it was fascinating. I, I love the stories. I love the ritual. I loved everything about it. It was fun. I didn't take it as a belief because to me, it was just one more story, one more set of stories. And very early on um, in Sunday school, as we were getting the Old Testament stories, I realized, well, these are the stories of the Jewish people. So this is a Jewish mythology. And I wasn't Jewish, I wasn't Greek, I wasn't um, Egyptian, but I enjoyed the stories and I, and I took them in, but I never assumed somehow that any of them were the one true right and only way and that all the others were false. That never occurred to me. They were all on a par. So I was pretty well prepared um, as I got involved in science fiction. And during that period, and we're talking about now, I was born in 1942, so I grew up in the 40s. Um, uh, it was interesting. I actually was raised by the triple goddess. My father was off in the South Pacific fighting the Japanese. I, my birth was probably a direct result of the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor, because when they did that, um, my father decided he had to go and fight him. Mm -hmm. So like many people going off into war, he thought it would be a really good idea to engender an heir before he left. So he did. But then he was gone, you know. Um, and my so I was raised by the mother, my mother, my maiden aunt, who never married uh, the maiden. And of course, my grandmother, the crone, were the three women, the triple goddess who, who raised me during that period until my dad came home from the war um, when I was three years old. So um, in right around oh the late 40s maybe right around 1950-ish or so robert heinland started writing a series of juveniles science fiction stories which were kind of like the harry potter books of my generation you know like there were seven of the harry potter novels that uh, came out one a year and the protagonist would be a year older each time well so it was with heinland's juveniles there a new one came out every year for 12 years and I devoured these, and I, uh, I made a deep connection with the town librarian, and every time a new one came out, you know, she would set it aside for me and let me know, oh, here's the latest one. So I was totally into that, and of course, I fell in love with the archetype of the, of the um, you know, intelligent, sexy librarian with glasses, you know, the whole archetype of the librarian, you know, is deeply imbued into my consciousness of the ideal woman, and um well, and Heinle led us through a series of lessons. All of the stories, wonderful stories, were about what does it mean to be fully human? 
which is really significant. And only science fiction can fully address that because it's the only thing that can provide a comparison in comparison to what, you know? So in science fiction, you can get, you know, alternates to humans. You can get alien races. You can get um, time travel. You can get lots of different perspectives that we don't get in normal life or only have the one perspective. Science fiction expanded the perspective to be cosmic, truly, literally. Mm -hmm. And I, I ate it up. And in each year, uh, the new stories, it's, as I recall, the protagonist would be a little older person. Until finally, the whole series culminated the year I started college in 1961. And the finale of the entire series was a, an amazing novel called Stranger in a Strange Land, which um, uh, changed the world. It, it, was, it became kind of the Bible of the hippie generation. And it began um, the first uh, year of a new uh, 60 year cycle and I've mapped out the 60 year cultural renaissance cycle all the way back to the Italian renaissance of the 1480s and the 1960s was one of those um, each of these has been given a name so the in the 1960s one was called the new age but they all had a name like that and um, and the, in it, it was launched by the invention of the pill, the birth control pill, which changed everything for, regarding sexuality. And Stranger in a Strange Land, which introduced a completely novel approach to theology and um, sexuality and relationships and community and social structure and, and everything, really. The theological implication was really profound because it was a very pagan perspective, one of imminent divinity that that God is not something out there, but uh, a quality and uh, an essence that we share with all sentient beings. And the expression that was used to um, to express that was thou art God in the story. But this novel also introduced the idea of priestesses. It introduced the idea of sacred sexuality. It introduced the idea of polyamory and, and so many, many things that, that shaped the world. The central ritual of, um, that was promoted, because the book actually also founds a church. Within the context of the book, a church is founded and with instructions given on how to go about doing that, uh, that were really quite brilliant. The phrase that Heinlein uh, used in that was, religion is a null area in the law. And he stated that at least in America, um, if you can establish yourself as a religion, you were pretty much exempt from the rules that govern almost every other social structure, which is why so many organizations tried to attain religious status like Scientology, even though that's kind of dubious. But, it, but he gave instructions on how to go about doing that, and I followed them. I said, well, okay. And the church in the, in the story was called the Church of All Worlds, which is very inclusive and very expansive, a vision that encompassed all of it all the wisdom teachings, not a church of a particular people or a particular nationality or even a particular specific theology, but an all-inclusive church that everybody could be a part of. And I thought that was a pretty good idea. So um, we did that. We did our first water sharing ceremony on April 7th of 1962 after, after several of us read the book. And I and my closest friend at that time, Lance Christie, 
sat down and shared water and dedicated ourselves to spending our lives to actualize this vision of an all-inclusive new religious model. We, we actually, at that time, were, in, were very inspired to change the world. We felt that that was something that really needed to do. So our first mission statement was to make the world safe for people like us. Mm -hmm. and, and we established a water brotherhood. We, we introduced other people to the story. We had an interesting system for that that I'll, I should tell you about. Right at the same time we started college in 1961. I mean, I was, th I was there in the 50s for that archetypal high school in the 50s, you know, that you get in all the movies and TV shows are all about high school in the 50s, comic books, everything was all about high school was always in the 50s. And uh, so I can tell people that I grew up in Pleasantville, which was actually quite accurate. That was exactly how it was, just like all the TV shows, like, you know, Leave it to Beaver or whatever. And um, so I was right there in the archetypal 1950s, and then I went off to college in the archetypal 1960s. So I was totally right there embedded in the cultural shifts exactly when they were happening. And I was right in the middle of it all. Interesting place to be. So um, the 60s, yeah. So we so, shared with and then what had also happened at that time, we went to college is that a brand new psychological model was being put out there which was transpersonal psychology was what it came to be called. Mm -hmm. And it was founded by people like Abraham Maslow and um, uh, Eric Fromm, Karen Horney, various other really quite radical things because it was a psychology not based on illness as all the previous models had been, but on a model of health. What would a healthy person be like psychologically? And what can we do to uh, find that? Um, study it, uh, identify the characteristics, and perhaps encourage that sort of a thing, rather than just simply addressing illness. It was a totally different model. An allopathic model had been dominating, and now we're at a, um, uh, a very different place. And so, Heim, um, sorry, um, so. Maslow came up with an idea of 15 characteristics that would identify the health model. So it was a self-actualization model. And these 15 characteristics he, that he identified um, were mapped in a um, survey called the Edwards Personal Preference Schedule, uh, EPPS. And so the head of our psych department at, at Westminster College, which where I entered, uh, was into this. And he got a, copy, got a hold of these tests, these surveys, and he gave them to all the incoming freshmen that year, which was really fascinating because they're really a neat little thing to ask. Just ask questions. What's your preference? This or that, the other thing. And, and then the final results grade your score according to these 15 scales, which are grouped into three groupings of five each on the, on the map. Well, this was way before there was computers, you see. So they had to have somebody to um, score these. And, um, well, I got the job. <laughs> uh, Lance and I actually got the job. We were in the psych department and we were students. And they said, well, here's all these, all these exams, all these tests from, I think there was about 400 students that year, the incoming freshmen. 
And so we did, we went through the, and we noticed, um, of course, the first thing that we did as anybody would do would be to check out our own and, and see what it looked like. And we noted that there was a pattern in the middle scale of an M. And they, we also noted as we continued doing that for the typical student, it was a W in that same place, which we called the Westminster W. And then we identified the M which was low in a basement and high in um, independence and low in, I don't know, it went up and down like that. I don't remember the details, but it identified us quite specifically. And we related to that. Yep, yep, that's us, all right. So we took a note then, and as we came across other students whose studies revealed an M, we would look them up and we would approach them and we would, um, introduce them to this book. Here, here's a book you think you might like, um, Stranger's Strange Land. And, and they come back and they, wow, that is tremendous. That's, I, I love that. That I really relate to that. We'd say, wonderful. Um, here, have a drink of water. <laughs> we'd share water. And we developed our earliest water brotherhood, which by the time we graduated, had about 100 people, including a couple of faculty members. And we called it ATL, A-T-L, which um, was one of these nerdy things. We, it was an Aztec word, which means water, but it had the esoteric meaning of the ancient lost homeland of our ancestors. And we related this to Atlantis and all that kind of cool stuff. It's the root of Atlantic you know, and so on. We thought that was kind of cool. We liked words that had a, uh, uh, an exoteric as well as an esoteric meaning. Mm -hmm. We collected quite a few of those, which we continue to use. They're great for passwords and stuff. And um, so that's what we called our group. We called it Adler. We referred to ourselves as Atlans. We published the very first underground publication that had ever been published in that school. We called the Atlan Torch. Um, early on in there, uh, my girlfriend uh, got pregnant and we got married and became the first students in the history of the school to get married while we were in school and have independent housing because all the other students had lived in dormitories or fraternity houses or, um, um, you know, had homes in town or something like that. But we had our own independent housing, which became quite a little place, you know, because we we followed the principles of Stranger in Strange Land, which included um, social nudity, skyclad, as it came to be called, you know, in the home. And it was in the time of folk songs and hoot nannies. So we we encouraged a lot of that. We found some abandoned clay quarries outside of town that nobody else knew about because we went hiking around a lot. And we commandeered these for the weekends and the warm weather for skinny dipping and, and folk songs and picnicking and lovemaking under the stars. And it was, it was quite, quite a, a marvelous little time. When we uh, graduated in 1965, and went off to graduate school in different places, different schools around the country. We carried on our communication in a um, newsletter, uh, what they call in these days an apazine, or in those days was called an apazine, which meant that people would write up something um, on a piece of paper and mail it to some central coordinating person who would then make copies and send out a bundled batch of these copies all stapled together to everybody on the list. And that was the early days of communication for the science fiction community. 
and that's what we used. And I was the one who collected and coordinated the different communications from people. And we um, entered into a major discussion, and that was, should we continue this being kind of a secret underground fraternity, a water brotherhood, as we had initially started it out? Or should we take this public? Should we come out and reveal ourselves to the rest of the world? And the debate on this was considerable because many people felt, well, they wanted to stay you know, in the background, wanted to stay in the closet, wanted to stay hidden, act behind the scenes. We were also influenced by things like Kurt Grafonagat's A Cat's Cradle and um, by the Herod experiment, by uh, uh, Rimmer's Herod experiment that advocated the idea of kind of a secret society that would manipulate the world from the shadows. And, and you know, since we kind of started off with that, most of the folks wanted to do that. But some of us, myself particularly, felt that, well, it had meant a lot to us to find others of our kind, to find that we were not alone. And, um, and, and there's got to be others of us out there. I mean, after all, we'd found about 100 of us in just four years of college. And there must be many more out there somewhere who are all lone and lonely and would like to connect. So we should run it up the flagpole and say, we're here. And if you're one of us, come on, come on in. And so we decided to do both. Uh, we decided to continue the Atlan Society. Uh, at that point, we renamed it the Atlan Foundation. Um, and then we decided to then go public with the Church of All Worlds. And Lance was elected to head up the Atlan Society, which eventually became incorporated uh, where it still is. And you can look it up online. So they've got a website and all that as the Association for the Tree of Life, ATL, again. And he continued to head that up for his entire life. And I was assigned to take the Church of All Worlds and run with that. We, our respective personalities seemed to suit. Lance and I uh, were truly Kirk and Spock to each other throughout our life. Um, him being the Spock archetype and I being the Kirk archetype. And, and I think people who have known either one of us would really relate to that because that was very characteristic of how we were. And closest of friends, right up to the very final moment when Lance died at Samhain of 2010 of pancreatic cancer and I continue to survive. So, we did all this and we set up these different things. And at Labor Day weekend of 1967, um, I came out with the first public presentation of the Church of All Worlds. And it was a uh, kind of a flea market garage sale thing at a local hippie, um, well, not hippie yet, it was Beatnik, a Beatnik coffee house. Uh, the hippie thing hadn't quite happened yet, but it was about to. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, churches could get free advertising on the radio and free ads in the paper. It was a church thing. So we did as the church of all worlds. And we came out and the point was to raise enough money to buy a copy machine so we could print out a little newsletter and put out our philosophy. So we did. We succeeded in that. And the person who was running the coffee house said, well, uh, people are asking about this church of all worlds. Would you come in and give a talk? So I said, sure. And the following Thursday, um, I came into the place. This was, um, I believe, um, I think it was the 7th of September of 1967. 
And this is the typical Beatnik coffee house. The interior walls would all be painted black. And in the corner, there'd be a triangular stage with a stool on it and a microphone. And you would come up there and wearing the typical black turtleneck sweater and goatee and the whole bit and recite um, your poetry. Um, some of which was actually pretty good and some of which was not mostly, but it didn't matter really because that was the entertainment. That's how it worked. And, you know, people would have a guitar maybe or they would just give a recitation. So I did. And I talked about the church of all worlds and the philosophy of imminent divinity and thou art God and, and the vision of making the world safe for people like us, of changing the world, you know, to, um, because here we are in the beginning of the 60s and everything was possible. And we were college students and, um, you know, and we had all these agendas of things that we wanted to make a difference for, which we spent the 60s doing, civil rights and feminism and gay rights and environmental issues and, and stop the war and all, all kinds of stuff. You know, we were really into it. And we did. We succeeded. Well, somebody asked a fatal question, the faithful question, I should say. They said, this church of all worlds thing you're talking about, what kind of a church is this? Are you some kind of a Christian sect, you know, or are you one of these new age things? Are you maybe one of these Eastern religions? Because, you know, funny religions were coming out of the woodwork back in those days. They were popping out everywhere. You know, you had this, the Moonies and the Scientologists and the Krishna consciousness people and you know, all kinds of coming out, Eastern and Western, mostly Eastern. Everybody was getting their gurus and stuff. Well, having grown up on classical mythology and having recently read an interesting article by Kerry Thornley, who was one of the early founders of the Discordian Society, uh, um, in which he advocated a return to paganism, and that was kind of the first time I really encountered the concept of paganism as a category, really. I, I really hadn't thought of it like that. It had just been, you know, just a term floating around an adjective, but not exactly in the concept of a category. And I, and I was impressed by that article. I thought, yeah, paganism, that's, that's pretty good. So when they asked me what kind of religion we were, I said, well, I guess you could say we're pagans. And nobody had ever said that before. Nobody had ever claimed to be pagan. And I've done searches of the literature and I've had other people who were seriously debating my position as being the one who started all this to try to look up earlier instances of anybody claiming the identity of paganism and, and claiming to be pagan and there aren't any. Nobody ever claimed to be pagan. It was, a, it was used in many ways. People referred to pagan stuff and pagan groups and pagan visions and pagan ideas you know, um, and, and, and lamented about the lost paganism of classical times and talked about, you know, the days of pagan splendor and the word was, was widely out there. It's just that nobody ever claimed it. So I did. And, um, you know, and I could, as I can say, the rest is myth, you know, or mystery, the rest is mystery. Because um, shortly after that, one of the people who had, who had come to our early meetings it's a guy named Aravi Kristen, and he's still around. He's in L.A. right now. He's somebody who'd really be worth looking up and talking to. Um, and he had um, taken the position of being the boohoo, as they called it, of the um, Neo-American Church, which was basically based on Native American stuff. But its primary purpose was to use 
psychedelics as a sacrament, peyote and like that, you know, which was cool. I think that they succeeded in accomplishing that over the time. But he had collected a lot of money from people wanting to support the cause, but he really didn't have it together to want to put an organization and do it. So we offered it to him. He said, look, I'll pay for your incorporation and you can incorporate this Church of All Worlds and we'll be a part of it. Several other people also wanted to join up. And so we had to create something for them to join. You know? mm -hmm. And um, so all of that happened. Uh, we, we got a hold of an attorney. I, I've had this vision, again, from Heinlein, that if we're going to set up a church, we should have the same um, structure of the most powerful extant churches so that if anybody trying to attack us would be attacking them as well. And then we could call on the ACLU to come to our defense, which we did. We got a hold of the attorney for the St. Louis Diocese of the Catholic Church. And um, it turned out that he was actually the brother of um, one of the beatnik people that I knew who had started a local coffee house, Jim Igo. And well, he was it was a brother. He was a friend of his. And um, his name was Richard Rabbit, as was his name. And, and he was really intrigued by the idea, wow, creating a new church that has all the same privileges and structure that the Catholic Church has, except the theology, of course, being different, so that um, legally we would, we would hold that position. So he set us up for that. And the most important part was the ability to have orders that you can have so that you can just create like the Catholic Church has all these different orders and monasteries and Franciscans and, and Jesuits and all that stuff. So we thought that was a really good idea. So if anybody showed up who wanted to be a heretic of some sort, we could just appoint them. Well, here you can have an order and you can still be under the group exemption. Mm -hmm. And we did all that. And we applied for our incorporation, which we received on March 4th of 1968. We got our incorporation in the state of Missouri. And it, shortly after, our incorporation at the federal level came through with our 501c3, which we got in July of 1970. We had an initial battle with the state of Missouri. They did not want to give an incorporation because we incorporated as the pagan church of all worlds, the first church to incorporate as a pagan church. Now, we weren't the first pagan church to incorporate. Uh, the previous year, Feriferia had incorporated, but they had not incorporated as a pagan church because they didn't use that terminology yet. But they were, and we heard about them, and we contacted them, and their brilliant visionary founder, Fred Adams, uh, really connected with this and the idea of it. And so I said, well, look, you know, we're pagans, and you guys seem like pagans too, and let's all be pagans together. And he said, yeah, that's that's a great word for what we are. And I know some other people over here, the Church of Eternal Source people, and they're Egyptian, and I think they're pagans too, so let's talk to them. And 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 then we said, well, let's let's start a council. Let's create a council of, of pagan churches and, and put the word out. And, oh, here's some Druids going on over here at, at Carleton College, um, and they're doing Druid stuff. So, you know, that's pagan, so let's bring them in too. And before long, we had established um, the Council of Themis, the first pagan ecumenical council that um, had, I guess, about a dozen members. And it was really 
I think pretty amazing and pretty cool that all these people identified as pagan and started using the term and spreading it around. And at that point, I came up with the idea of neo-pagan because we, 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 being well aware that all other groups out there that were what we considered pagan were also under the category, we wanted to make a distinction between the people that were continuing longtime pagan practices like Hindus and Native Americans and Australian Aborigines and you know all the different indigenous peoples around the world that continue pagan practices, um, you know uh, Shinto and many many others. So we didn't want people to think that we were claiming that identity um, of them. So we said, well, we're the neo-pagans, we're new pagans. So we actually, that was the term that we used for quite a while and in all of our publications and relatings. But over time, that seemed to be less relevant. So we've just kind of lapsed to being pagans and that's now broad enough to cover everybody. But Isaac Bonowitz came up with more distinctions. He came up with neo-pagans and paleo-pagans and meso-pagans to be the three groupings. The Mesopagans being the people who, um, like um, African diasporic in the uh, New World, for example, who were following old pagan traditions that went back thousands of years, but they had established new identities as Vodun or um, Santeria or, you know, Condombly and various things like that. So those are the Mesopagans and we were the Neopagans and everybody was happy being pagans and we all connected with each other and I continued putting out publications and we started the green egg as our very first publication at spring equinox of 1968 the same time that month we had um in march not only did we get our incorporation but we took over a what had been a christian coffee house in st louis on gaslight square which was sort of the hate ashbury of st louis and um it had been run by a consortium of Christian groups who were trying to reach out to the street people. By that time, there was hippies, you know, so we were, we were the first hippies, the last beatniks and the first hippies, you know, like in all those comic books and movies and TV shows where they have this one guy who's kind of a beatniky character in the high school 50s scene, you know, Jughead or Maynard Krebs or whatever. Now, that was me. I was like the, 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 the last beatnik and the first hippie sort of as well as the first pagan, it was interesting being in that position. So we ended up taking that over. What happened was that they were having a, a weekly meeting where, where they would have uh, invite people to come in and they would talk about their stuff. And I, and I started going to those and getting engaged in the conversation. And one day I went and the Christian clerk, pastor who was supposed to be there didn't show up. So I ended up leading the meeting and, and I talked about the theme that I talked about was how do you decide what your religion is going to be? How do you make that decision? Is it you just do what your parents did? You know, you didn't do what your parents did with anything else in your life. So why would you do it about religion? And we led into this provoking conversation of um, how do you determine what is your faith path? Well, the, the next week, the uh, pastor came and said, you know, we had a meeting among us and we kind of decided this mission is not really working for us. We're just not getting people coming into our churches, which was the whole point. And you guys seem to be uh, reaching, reaching the people, the, the street people. So would you like to take over the coffee house? And we said, um, yeah, sure. Why not? 
it was this big, huge four-story mansion of a house and um, with a basement. It was all a coffee house basement and it was all ready to go. And the, the rent on it was, I think, $175 a month, which was a stretch, but we managed to come up with it. And we got this whole incredible place, this big, huge mansion on the corner mm-hmm. in St. Louis. And we, did, we, we maintained that for about a year until the whole street scene completely self-destructed. It blew up entirely when uh, the biker gang started introducing white powder drugs, you know, heroin and cocaine into the community and everything just fell apart. There was violence and craziness and drug scene. And in San Francisco, they staged a death of hippie event in which they carried a big coffin through the streets, all decorated with flowers and peace signs. And we had to give it up. We said, wow, um, we can't do this. So right about that time, uh, Star Trek had premiered and it was on Friday nights. So we said, well, um, let's just get together on Friday nights at somebody's house that has a TV and everybody didn't in those days. And we will watch Star Trek and have a nest meeting. Mm -hmm. And so the Church of All Worlds went from having a great big temple to that was in a coffee house to um, Friday night nest meetings at various people's homes. And that's kind of the way the whole thing got started and launched. Um, You know, there are many stories that can follow it, but there's, but there's the um, opening shot of the whole thing. Well, I think that's very important. It gives us some really consistent moments because I think a lot of people hear these stories, but now you've given us some of the, the moments. So the next step would be, of course, when did it cross over for you into you're doing Green Egg, you've gone through the coffee house, now you're back into people's homes, and you've got the Church of All Worlds registered. You have the uh, various forms of, of immunical processes. But at that point, when did it jump over from, for your opinion, from being just simply, it sounds very localized, very St. Louis. How did you jump from that to nationalism, the national scene? You make that influence on a larger level. You mentioned Isaac Bonowitz. Um, you talk about the Water Brotherhood. Let me go ahead and, and do that. Was there women involved with the Water Brotherhood, or was it just the Water Brotherhood? Well, no, no, no. Of course, it was women involved. Um, Heinlein introduced the concept of priestesses in Stranger in a Strange Land, which is a radical thing. Only pagan religions have priestesses, which we thought was pretty amazing. And yes, of course, women were involved in the very beginning. Um, you know, our, our Lance and I had respective girlfriends. Um, you know, my girlfriend was Martha and his was Penny. We ended up marrying them and having kids. And they were a part of it as well. And there were, um, from the very beginning, there were just as many women as men. Eventually, we had to address the idea of the terminology of water brothers and water brotherhood to basically change it to water kin, which is the term we use now to, uh, to everybody who's a part of it, because we one would avoid the sexist terminology. But back in those days, we were just beginning to shift away from using masculine terms to imply inclusivity, like mankind and stuff like that, to change it to humanity, you know, and and all that. So that was also part of what we were doing is coming up with non-sexist language. One of the ones that in fact, uh, that I think is really significant is that people today now are using a plural uh, um, indefinite pronouns it, it, to be singular. They're referring to individuals as they rather than as he or she. But 
that seems really dumb to me because that's a plural term. And there is, in fact, there are singular terms that were established. The very first issue of Ms. Magazine, which came out sometime in the mid-60s, featured a big article proposing indefinite pronouns based on a book that had come out. And they proposed the terms te, ter, and tem, a derivation from they, their, and them, as being singular indefinite pronouns, which we thought was great. And we used those in our writings and in publications in Green Egg and stuff. We used the indefinite pronouns of te, ter, and tem, which I still recommend. And somehow that's been lost. And I really would like to advocate for getting those into use because it's very difficult when you read a, a novel and people are writing them in which they're trying to be um, non-gender based and they use the terminology and you don't know how many people they're talking about. You know, when right. they say, you know, they went to the store. Are you talking about one person or are you talking about a whole bunch of people? You don't know. And it's, you know, when you're dealing with it on a personal level, I guess it sort of works one at a time, you know, but it does not work in literature and writing to, to confuse the terminology. And you have to be precise so you know what you're talking about. Anyway, that's just a little side issue, but we right. were involved in that. We were involved in everything revolutionary at that time. So the jump from St. Louis to National. Right. I mean, that's the that's the crucial, I think, a crucial element. Because you've done Green all egg. this great. Green Egg. It was Green Egg. That was what did it. Green Egg is now the longest running magical publication ever. You know, 56 years mm -hmm. of publishing this this magazine now it's of course it's online it's been online for the last 20 years but um for a long time it was a print medium and you know in the early days we we printed them up we got a, a a copy machine and then we got a printer and then a little desktop printer then we got a great big multi-lith printer and we just printed the magazine on that and we would have collating parties uh for green egg that became actually kind of legendary in drawing down the moon, Margot Adler talks about coming to visit us and participating in one of our uh, uh, green egg collating parties, which everybody sat around naked and passed around big bowls of popcorn and stuff like that. And we would usually watch Star Trek, you know, because we'd have these on Friday and do the whole bit and put out the magazine. Well, the wider that got spread in promoting the idea of pagan, we published um uh, yellow pages directories of groups we published uh, uh, just everything we could to reach out and connect with people we'd every group we'd hear about we'd exchange copies with them if they put out a newsletter or just send them green egg and it was green egg really that created that that established it because uh, people would contribute would write and we'd publish the manifestos of every group we published letters in a letter column called the green egg forum which is now a um, facebook page which is pretty cool the green egg forum and it's continues lively discussions and these entertained wild lively discussions about a third of the magazine was devoted to the forum and we just debated every issue that came up and it was really great because around at that time the witches came in and they hadn't been a part of the early thinking at all because witchcraft had been presented to us in america as um not something you could be a part of uh, the only there were three witches that published their autobiographies in that time. There was um, Justine Glass in her uh, it's the witchcraft, the sixth sense. There was Louise Hubner, and there was of course Sybil Leake, who was the most famous of these. Mm -hmm. And in all of their autobiographies, 
they promoted the same mythos that we got in Bewitched, in I Married a Witch, in Bill Book and Candle, and all those, that witches are not exactly human. They're like a subspecies that is slightly different, like, you know, vampires and demons and werewolves have become to be, and fairies, you know. And, and so they had different characteristics. And that was how they were presented in all these shows and movies. And that's how these three women in their autobiographies presented. This is a family thing that is passed down in the family. No, you can't join. You can't sign up. You can't study to become a witch. That isn't how it works. You have to be born into it. And so we didn't think about witchcraft. We just kind of dismissed it. But we did not know at that time that a couple of people, Gerald Gardner and Alex Sanders, were in fact establishing a different kind of witchcraft in England, but it was very underground, although they did get a lot of local publicity, Sanders did, and then uh, Gardner eventually wrote books like Witchcraft Today and stuff. So, so in the 50s, witchcraft was becoming established in England, but it didn't make it over to America until the 60s when Gerald Gardner commissioned the Bucklands, uh, Ray and Rosemary Buckland, to come over to America and bring the craft to the colonies, you know? And they established a, um, in Long Island, New York, they established the Long Island Coven and a Long Island uh, Museum of Witchcraft. And so when I, we heard about those, and it was um, 1972, uh, Susan Roberts wrote a book called Witches USA, in which she went around and visited a number of different witches out in the East Coast and interviewed them and wrote up their old stories in the book. And right about that time, um, a few people uh, also organized and started putting out something they called the Pagan Way, again, utilizing the pagan term, which was actually just kind of a front for witchcraft, but they didn't want to call it that because they didn't want to scare people. Um, and the book came out. So the, there was a World Science Fiction Convention held in Boston that year of 1972. So, you know, um, some of us drove out there to attend the convention and looked up Susan Roberts and visited with her. And she took us around and introduced us to all the people she had written about. And I'll tell you, the New York witchcraft scene was just straight out of Bell, Book and Candle. That's exactly how it was, which was neat. You know, we got to meet all these really cool people, you know, Leo Lewis Martello. And, um, and, and of course, Ray and Mose and Ray Buckland. And we visited them out at their place on Long Island and totally hit it off. And, and, and again, we promoted the idea, hey, you guys all seem like pagans. Let's all be pagans together. And, and they came in and they joined the Council of Themis, which right about that same time was underwent some, actually, I got the dates wrong. This was 1970 mm. or 71. Because in 72 was the World Con in um, San Francisco, no, Los Angeles, the LA World Con, which is another story that I'll have to tell. So this was before that, and the Council of Themis was still growing strong. In the 1972, it all came apart, and that's a whole interesting story, really. And then... Uh, 1973 was the Gnostic Aquarian Festival in Minneapolis, uh, where all kinds of pagans were there because Isaac Bonowitz had been recruited to be editor of the uh, Llewellyn Publications, Gnostica News. And he said that, hey, we got a convention coming up 
And previously, they'd just been held for their authors, Llewellyn authors, which was all about uh, psychics. They were all basically um, psychic people who wrote their books about psychic stuff and astrology and things like that. So they were very limited. But Isaac said, look, there's a whole pagan community emerging out there. Let's invite a bunch of pagan leaders and authors and stuff. Well, at that time, the very few were actually authors, but he was. He had written his first book, um, uh, Real Magic, which was quite popular and, and still is. And so he did. He arranged for them to invite all these pagan leaders. And it was revolutionary. We came, we all got to meet each other and hang out together. And that's where I met Morning Glory, which is such another story, you know, but I'll stop right there. So now we've got um, Nausicaa, the, that is famous for creating this sort of rules of witchcraft. And everybody always thought there was this big council. It was. Uh, it and, was. And, and they it would collapse shortly thereafter. A lot of these organizations have not made a lot of them. Church of All Worlds has a number of them have not made it into the future. I mean, to now, a lot of that is energy. And you're, uh, so this is one of the important reasons of birth of paganism. So you saw Green Egg, these sort of conventions. Let's tackle one more piece I think is important. You were there as a primary individual that I think is now at the center of pagan culture, more so than anything else. And that's the idea of festivals, going out and doing things together for a period of time, creating a village and teaching each other, you know, this sort of reading. Starwood is an example of that, though it's a mind expansion piece. It did attract a lot of this sort of pagan thought. You, then you had Pan Pagan, one of the oldest in the country, then Circle and all that. And you became, this is where I think in a lot of ways, you became a speaker, where you became beloved versus being just a sort of leader, this uh, dynamic thought leader. Uh, people don't realize a lot of times that you were also the first to put feathers on dinosaurs. There's a lot. You had an intellectual capacity beyond just the teachings. You also were a rigorous student and had uh, that sort of thing. Actually, that's how I first met you. Is one of those lectures about dinosaurs. Um, not not paganism. My aunt was there in college in Chicago. She dragged me along. Um, big influence. But festivals. Can you talk about that? Because you were right there at the opening of that. I mean, you know, because you talk about festivals that now celebrating 45 years, 35 years, you know, that sort of thing. Well, I've kind of um, uh, created a timeline of decades uh, of right. which the most important uh, aspects of paganism in those decades and all the way back through the 20th century um, to the earliest days. Um, and, and so, you know, they had their different emphasis in the... Um, the 60s um, was a decade of groups being formed and beginning to reach out to each other and claiming the identity of pagan and forming the first pagan councils. Mm -hmm. And then that was followed by the beginnings of the first festivals. And um, well, well, there was also the first publication. So the 70s involved publications going out there. Green Egg was kind of the pioneer. But um, there were there were others that emerged too. There was the Crystal Well, and there was Harvest, and and quite a few of them. I think Green Egg, you know, Circle Circle put out their Circle Network News. Um, you know, each of them had their own particular role. Circle's orientation was primarily towards newbies coming in, and so it was introductory beginner stuff. Um, Green Egg was kind of the, you know, inside publication that that everybody read, but particularly the the group leaders and the people on the inside. Margot talked in, in one of her books um, 
uh, her, I think her autobiography about uh, encountering Green Egg at the, at the Magical Child Store in New York, where it was this hidden behind the counter secretive publication at all. Oh, this is the inner mystery stuff, you know. And then, and, and others had their different particular roles. Most of them were advocating for their particular group. Um, Circle was uh, broad. And, and of course, Green Egg was broad, something for everybody. And, um, and they all had a different position of what they accomplished. And I think it was very important. But nobody actually had met each other personally until we started traveling around. And I think that I was one of the most traveled peoples in those days because I was going to science fiction conventions and meeting people. And a lot of pagans were going to those because we didn't have pagan festivals. We had science fiction conventions. These days, you know, there's, there's less of that. But, but things like the Society of Creative Anachronisms, which was created in 1966 uh, at Beltane by Diana Paxson in her backyard, um, and, and decided that it would be really great to start this group and have its events occur on the pagan holidays. So they kind of created a competing structure. So if you wanted to celebrate, you know, any of the pagan uh, Wheel of the Year stuff, you had to decide whether you were going to go to a pagan gathering or a um, uh, SCA event, you know. But we, we worked all that stuff out over time. You know, different groups would pick different weekends and, and everybody managed to work it out. But the festivals were phenomenal because when they started happening, and the first ones were Circles, uh, Pagan Spirit Gathering, and uh, Starwoods um, thing. Those were, I think, the very earliest ones. And everybody came together and met each other. And... Uh, you know, and participate in rituals together and, and went to workshops with each other and learned to do it and sat around the campfire talking about stuff and, and sharing, you know, mead and feed and weed and screed, you know, late into the evening and, and established romantic liaisons across the, any boundaries of traditions so that, so that people were all becoming interconnected on another whole level. And the festivals were and continue to be a significant part of that. I've attended um, every Starwood uh, after the first couple. I missed the first three, I think. But after that, I've been to every one of them. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I've been here for generations because the current one is like number 45, I believe, this year. This year. Yeah. So it's quite a long time. So I've attended 42 Starwoods over the years. And in 42 years, you know, I've gone from, you know, a you know, a young man with dark hair to an old man with white hair and beard, you know, and, and I've seen whole generations grow up, two generations grow up and, and bring their kids and their kids grow up and bring their own kids. And, and I've always been there. I've always been a part of this. And it's, it's been an amazing experience. And so I, I still do. I still go to all the festivals I can. Now, the big thing that's happening are pagan pride events happening in more and more cities. And I'm participating in those and on a committee locally in Asheville, North Carolina, to, to work with the next pagan pride we're having here. So it all, it all moves on. And, and that's been a good part of my work. Um, also, in, uh, in addition to Green Egg, in my writings and editorials for that over the years, I've started writing books. And I was like 60 years old before I wrote my first book, but I was encouraged to do so. And um, so now I've got 18 books out, well, 19 with the current one, which will be published um, this month, 
expected to be, which is called History's Mysteries, my 19th book. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a big thing for me. So a lot of my work is trying to put my thoughts and stuff, the workshops I've been giving, all the talks I've been given over the years, I'm now putting them into books. And, and you're probably one of the, if not the most, uh, one of the best known of the festival circuit, circuits out there. You've done a lot of videos. You've done a lot of things. And we're going to explore more of this. But there it is, folks, the real nexus of the beginnings right up until the, the public national attention of paganism and why Oberon is seen as the father of modern paganism a lot of times. And it's an issue that is because of this critical history that a lot of people just don't know. So when you're looking at your elders, realize they had a whole youth and they had a whole young adulthood and they had all of this just like you did. And you know they may seem very wise and very cultured right now, but at one time they struggled just like we all did. And you had a pretty, you're in a pretty unique position. Um, I think that as being one of the first and with regrets of the way life is or just joy that life is, you're one of the last to actually be coherent, let's call it that, effective and still traveling. I mean, you're still doing this work. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Next week I'll be um, with my new lady. I'm now engaged to a wonderful lady. So 10 years after the death of Morning Glory, and we had 40 years together, which were amazing. And mm-hmm. um, uh, Nearly 10 years ago, and I am now engaged to be married to Rhiannon, amazing priestess. And um, we're scheduled for our wedding to be May 17th at the Seren Arid May Moon Magic Beltane Festival that we... Mm-hmm met at and um very excited about that and we're going to vegas this month next week we've got a gig in vegas and then next month we'll be doing a gig in um um in detroit for a convocation the vegas one is called witch vegas and we'll be there uh you know going out there next week uh, leaving you know next uh, wednesday That's or thursday good. vegas has become like one of the fun spaces that i've i've, I've been involved with in the last couple of years so it's very interesting oh yeah they've got a great pagan community out there and i've known those people for decades you know really great folks mm-hmm. so we're going to continue on with this in no time we want to thank oberon zell for being here and if you want to find him i think oberonzell.com is one of the best places you can look uh that's really kind of his portal into this next version of the world uh so go there check out green egg is still out there um, there's a lot of other things he began, but this is where the basic story was. It started with the awareness of being uh, reborn in a very reincarnational way, and then you know, pursuit of science fiction, pursuit of, of a lot of open things, being raised by open-minded uh, women, the three uh, the three goddesses of his life, and then moved into college, like a lot of us do. Found himself there, found other people there, coffee houses, businesses, magazines. From there, his adventures go on. But this is, but today, this is basically essentially the story of how, from St. Louis, from the sort of thing that we spread out into more of a national, now international movement. And we'll be back more with more of this, but this is the beginnings. Uh, if you have any sto- stories or criticisms or anything, which mostly stories, that's what I want. I don't want to hear anything else. Um, PeggyWorldTV at gmail.com, and we will continue the story. We will be back more with this episode all year. 
Um, so thank you and uh, blessings. All right, blessed be. And may you never thirst. <laughs>